Hello, and welcome back to Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Apologies for the delay in episodes. Nobody wanted to talk to me because of finals. But we're back and infringing on people's winter breaks. Today, we'll be talking to PhD candidate Dave Abel about intelligent agents and reinforcement learning. Dave Abel is a PhD candidate in computer science at Brown. His research focuses on the foundations of artificial intelligence and its applications to scientific and societal challenges. We'll be talking about his research and its implications and ask him why you'd call him if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now, welcome Dave. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me here. Thanks for being here and sharing your work. Why don't you give a quick introduction about you and and what you do? Sure thing. So I'm a PhD candidate at Brown. I work with Michael Lippmann, focusing in computer science and specializing in areas of AI and machine learning and things like that. I'm expecting to graduate in about a year and some change. So I'm at the tail end of my program, which means I'm mostly focusing up on wrapping up my final projects and starting to scout opportunities beyond PhD. Great. And you just finished presenting your thesis, right? Right. So my kind of a mini proposal for my thesis that kind of outlines, here's what my thesis is going to contain. And then in about a year, I'll do the full presentation of full the defense. actual thesis. That's sort of the, the follow-up that says, you know, here's my defense of my thesis. Exactly. Okay, perfect. Makes sense. We're still kind of getting used to the terminology. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So what made you choose your field and what led you to where you are today? Yeah, so I guess I started out really excited about philosophy. I took a few sort of philosophical courses in high school, or really history classes that sort of talked about some of the big ideas throughout the last 500 or so years that have contributed to the kinds of changes we've seen in all facets of society. That got me really excited about better understanding the kind of development of ideas that led to the technology we have now. And so in college, I studied kind of a mixture of computer science and philosophy to really hone in on some of that history and some of those ideas. And at the end of the day, that led to this mixture of a lot of curiosity about the nature of computation, the nature of inference and decision-making and things of that that kind, along with trying to better understand my own experience and how I can explain my own perception and language and how you can have dreams and reflections and things like that. And so that got me really excited about a lot of the core ideas of AI. I mean, AI is kind of this umbrella field that studies all sorts of these topics all at once. And at the same time, you know, offers this huge potential to solve some really hard problems that we don't yet have solutions for. Yeah. And so that mixture got me really excited about this area. And what are some of these hard problems that you're talking about? Yeah, so it it sort of depends on how far into the future you want to look or how far into the past you want to look. But I'd say anything where, you know, we can take advantage of the powers of a computer. So it has effectively perfect memory and the ability to run huge amount of computation without getting bored and be very precise in those computations, right? Like if I'm going to add up 10 numbers, by the time I get to the 10th, I will probably have made a mistake just knowing myself. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas as we know, you know, if you punch some things into a calculator, it's going to get it right every time, barring some weirdness with the calculator. Yeah. And so that sort of ability, if you kind of generalize it beyond addition and instead turn it to much more complicated tasks, we open up the opportunity to solve problems we couldn't solve before. So as an example, you know, finding a route through a complex maze, you know, we have to trace around with our eyes and, you know, maybe we come up with some nice strategies like hugging a particular wall and 
Yeah. Uh, maybe we can backtrace from the exit or something like that. But because a computer has this mixture of good memory and the ability to perform these computations um, nearly perfectly, we can take advantage of that to solve problems of this form really, really fast. Yeah, and helps um, us generalize to finding the closest Starbucks when we're on a road trip. Yeah, exactly. Right. Great. And so mixing with this advent of you know this huge amount of data we now have available about you know through things like Wikipedia, kind of the history of species and taxonomy of a lot of objects in the world and also the kinds of things people do through social media. There's just nearly limitless kinds of applications of this technology to hopefully help folks with their lives. Yeah. So let's delve into what AI actually is. What is an intelligent agent and what is reinforcement learning? Yeah. So I think you'll get a lot of different answers about intelligence. Some folks have been trying to drill that term down for a long time. And I personally don't think there's one kind of unifying perfect answer yet. Maybe we'll get there eventually, but... And a computer will probably be the one to figure it out. Sure. Yeah, (laughs) it could be. Exactly. But there's a nice paper by uh, Shane Legg and Marcus Hutter kind of summarizing attempts to formalize intelligence in a variety of ways. For me personally, I have chosen to ground intelligence formally in terms of being effective at reinforcement learning. And so I'll get to RL in a second, but effectively... Because RL is a very general way to talk about the kinds of behaviors and concepts that we think are very close at home with our study of of intelligent systems, if a particular agent is good at reinforcement learning, then I take it to be effectively intelligent. Again, kind of with this backdrop assumption that there's probably a more philosophically satisfying answer out there Mm -hmm. somewhere. And just to be complete, when, when we say agent, it's just some object that has agency. So it has some collection of competing outcomes that it can choose between. Hmm. So if you're playing chess, you know, one agent is just a strategy for how to uh, take actions in the context of the game of chess. So chess is a good example because there's a win or lose criteria, right? Is, are there examples of reinforcement learners or intelligent agents in spaces where there's not necessarily a black or white? Is there a gray area? Yeah, absolutely. So one kind of funny example that we probably all interact with in our daily lives is an elevator. Hmm. So maybe there's a way to cash it in terms of win or lose. But for the most part, I don't think of elevators as winning or losing, just sort of (laughs) doing the kinds of things that they're supposed to. So an elevator is making decisions in some sense, you know, based on the buttons that have been pressed across all of its floors, based on the buttons that have been pressed inside, you know, it has to choose which floor should I go to next. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, in fact, different strategies for this. And there are even different ways you can kind of endow the elevator with agency. Like some elevators, uh, I went to one building in New York that had, I think, something like eight elevators, and they each would just go to a single floor. So oh. elevator two would always go to floor three, and elevator three would always go to floor four, and so on. And so there's sort of a choice of how to endow these things with agency, such that maybe the agent has different capacities for you know, doing well or doing poorly. So in that context, it's, you know, how much waiting time do people have? That's maybe a better, uh, yeah, better way of describing always... what an elevator is doing rather than winning, I guess. Yeah, that's why I always say thank you when I leave an elevator because I want it to yeah, exactly. for me in case that's in its reward criteria. <laughs> right, uh, right. Great. So yeah, what is reinforcement learning to you then? Yeah, so reinforcement learning is a problem statement that says we have an agent, a thing that can take actions, that's trying to learn to take good actions by getting to observe the world that it inhabits and occasionally getting to observe some feedback that tells the agent how it's doing or really how desirable that particular state of the world is. 
And so, you know, when you're training an animal, for instance, maybe you're training a puppy to do a particular trick, you know, your puppy is trying to solve the reinforcement learning problem. It gets feedback when it takes certain actions and it's trying to maximize the amount of good feedback that it gets. Where feedback in the context of computational reinforcement learning is typically a number. I'm differentiating between computational RL here because there's also folks in the cognitive and neuro side that also look at at reinforcement learning and its role in the human brain. Hmm. Okay, so is reinforcement learning based off of the way humans learn? Is it supposed to be a direct mapping or is it some sort of heuristic? Yeah, that's interesting. I think the originators of the field, so certainly I think had some basis in how humans learn. And there have been this an ongoing trajectory of research trying to look at the extent to which you know certain kinds of algorithms that have been successful in the computational side might actually help explain how people solve certain kinds of problems or how certain kinds of representations that are effective in the computational side might be useful in the in the cognitive side and things like that. My take is that while it's you know loosely and well maybe not so loosely, it's inspired by how people learn, but maybe isn't taken exactly by how people learn. And I think there's still some room to better explore that space uh, scientifically. I'm not sure I'm fully up to date on, you know, how the computational and cognitive folks would view one another's work in context. I would guess there are probably people at either end of the continuum that would say, absolutely, computational RL is derived directly from, you know, these certain kinds of things that are going on in the brain or the kinds of feedback that we get. For me, there are enough slight departures in the way that we typically study RL in AI that make it just different enough that maybe there's not, you know, an obvious perfect connection, even though if there is a pretty solid connection. Yeah. So because there are differences, are there things that intelligent agents can't do that humans can do today or that the intelligent agents can do that humans can't? Yeah, definitely. So there are a variety of different things that I think kind of we've been successful in getting reinforcement learning agents to do where people haven't, can't yet be successful. And these are the kinds of things that take advantage of those benefits of computation I mentioned before. So cases where you know you need to do a lot of computation or you need to hold on to a lot of stuff in your head all at once, those are usually cases where reinforcement learning can be pretty effective. And with learning comes the sort of third axis of a potential benefit of computation, which is the ability to do a good job of summarizing a big data set. So people are pretty good at this sort of thing. But of course, if you, you know, get a lot of time to look through a data set, you can do a very good job of coming up with some models or some theories that do a good job of explaining your data. And as a result, those sorts of systems have been really effective in RL where people are not quite as adept. Do you have any examples of where that sort of situation or scenario can be found? Hmm. Let's see. I'm trying to think of specific work that highlights this kind of fact. Yeah, I'm thinking something, and I can edit this stuff out, but... I'm thinking something sure. like if RL or humans are better at like visual perception of a single image of a video over time or like of a scene over time mm-hmm. or like versus a enormous database of unstructured data versus, I don't know, seeing, finding patterns in the way that an animal acts or something like that. Right. Yeah. So maybe the, the canonical examples are now these success in the last couple of years. So there's the DeepMind's work on playing Go. Uh, there was some reinforcement learning going on in the, mm. in the core of their Go playing algorithm AlphaGo yeah. that, you know, of course, beat Lisa Dahl, the world champion uh, back in 2016. And then uh, by, in a similar vein, and also had a different approach, but still at the core doing reinforcement learning, 
play a bunch of Atari games. Yeah. And where the input to the system was just the image of the Atari game as opposed to some kind of abstracted knowledge that, you know, already breaks the world into objects and, you know, carves the worlds at its joints so that the agent has an easier time to reason about it. And in those games, some of those games, at least things like Pong and Breakout, the reinforcement learning agent they concocted did a very good job of, you know, maximizing its score in these games. So what's actually happening in the reinforcement agents, reinforcement learning agents brain effectively when it sees that screen image and it's fully trained? I mean, at first it looks just like pixels to it, right? But when I play an Atari game, I see that there's a ship and then I'm firing it at, at an asteroid. Is that sort of logic still true or do we even know? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would say we don't know with certainty. There's a lot of active research the last few years trying to you know unpack a lot of these models and come up with good explanations for why exactly these things are learning the things that they are. We do have some insights. So a lot of the techniques that take as input images are based on these convolutional neural networks, which mm-hmm. are effectively you know, making a, a kind of assumption about the pixels that it's going to see. And that assumption is that there's some kind of locality to the things that you're looking at. So if a pixel's here, it's probably going to be loosely correlated with the things in its rough spatial neighborhood. And so by inc- even just adding that to the learning algorithm, we're already sort of baking in an assumption about how it's going to learn the concepts that emerge during learning. Okay. I guess on top of that, there's been some really nice work in the computer vision community looking at trying to highlight what characteristics these networks pay attention to playing games and also trying to classify objects, trying to classify language, things like that. And it does seem like in a lot of cases, the sort of quote unquote vision system of these agents will first look for certain kinds of low level patterns like um, edges or corners of objects in the image. And then we'll look at combinations of these edges and corners that create sort of higher level characteristics of the image. Like if there's a block or if there's a, you know, a cross-shaped entity, things of that nature. Yeah. So that's how the agent models the world and is in some sort of abstraction of the visual space that it sees, right? Yeah, right. That's the general story. Although, so there's the last few years, we've uncovered a lot of, you know, frailties in these systems. So there's these cool examples where you can take a network that can accurately identify objects in the images. So for instance, show it an image of a giraffe and it will correctly say, yes, there's a giraffe in this image. But then if you play with a few pixels that are well chosen, so you change the sky color around the giraffe in maybe four or five pixels from being one shade of blue to a slightly darker shade of blue, you can convince the network to call this giraffe, you know, guacamole or something like that. Yeah. And so there are these sort of frailties to a lot of the systems that we're working on now that a lot of folks are trying to fix. There's a really active community trying to remedy this issue. So most of what I've seen of intelligent agents have shown them built for very specific and narrow purposes like AlphaGo and DeepMind, everything you've been saying earlier. Mm -hmm. But I think everybody's always scared of like iRobot seeing Will Smith run away from these generally intelligent robot people. So how close are we to really generalizing these very specific use cases, like playing a very specific Atari game? Like, for example, are the agents able to switch Atari games after they've learned on one and do just as well as a human might? Yeah, there are. Let's see. So there's a few lines of work that investigate that sort of question specifically for Atari. And my sense is that games that are relatively similar, like transferring between Pong and Breakout, because they have sort of similar concepts, similar objects at play. You have balls bouncing around, similar physics, things like that. 
we can do well in that sort of situation. If the agent already learned to play one game and then tries to play this other game, building on its knowledge from before, there's definitely some active work in that space. And we've seen some success as far as sort of realizing this more general approach to AI and to learning where you have the kind of flexibility where you could, an agent could play Atari for a little bit and then go make a meal, go take a walk, maybe write a short story, you know, do the diversity of tasks that people are capable of. My personal take is that there's a lot of uncertainty over when we're going to see systems of that form. Hmm. It's really hard to project, you know, the specifics of this sort of thing, um, in part because we don't know, you know, there could be a huge breakthrough in a month or a year, or it might take 10 years. There are certain problems that we might not foresee as being really challenging, but are in fact really challenging. Some folks have argued that we have all the tools right now in front of us, and so we just have to sort of mix them together in the right way. Yeah. There's a really nice survey from, uh, let's see, it's Grace Salvatier, Defoe, Zhang, and Evans, 2017, I think, called When Will AI Exceed Human Performance? And they did a nice survey, you know, interviewing a lot of AI experts and asking them the sorts of questions, you know, when do we think AI will be able to cook a meal? When do you think mm-hmm. AI will be able to, I think one of the questions was be an AI researcher and things like that. <laughs> That's um, cool. So I'd, I'd encourage folks to take a look at that if you're interested. Yeah, and again, I guess my personal take is there are still a lot of really hard theoretical problems that we haven't yet solved at the core of AI and machine learning and reinforcement learning. And it's pretty uncertain as to when we'll solve those in a you know a satisfactory way that we can deploy these more general. Was there any sort of consensus in that 2017 paper about when a robot may be able to cook a meal um, or other? You know, I'd have to double check. There were certain predictions that had much lower variance yeah. that people were much more confident about. Were those the more specific tasks or were those the more general applications? Um, I think they were the more specific tasks that had lower variance, but I really don't remember. I think the variance was still, you know, we had standard deviation. The first standard deviation was still covering something like 10 to 20 years yeah, or so for most. Really nobody has any idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, uh, you know, it's really hard to speculate about these sorts of things. So Okay. Well, let's get into your work a little bit more specifically. So sure. what specifically do you do? Yeah. So the main question that I ask in the context of reinforcement learning is how an agent can come up with the right kind of abstractions about its environment. So for example, you know, if you're sitting down to a, a nice dinner, being able to readily recognize the kind of context that you're in identify certain things as, you know, a wine glass, perhaps being able to identify new pieces of silverware and, but recognize it in a way that you could know that by picking up the wine glass and throwing it at the wall, it's going to shatter. So being able to have the sort of capacity to predict the right kinds of things about your environment that are going to be useful for navigating your environment. That's the core question. And there's really two modes of this abstraction the first of which is abstraction at the level of you know, properties of the world. So as an example, being able to, in the context of this dinner scene, come up with this high-level property of, yeah, I'm sitting down to a, a meal. That's this high-level property that might be really important for making decisions that isn't really encoded directly in the things that you're perceiving in the world. At the same time, in addition to being able to abstract at the level of the things in your surroundings, we can also abstract our own behavior. So a classic example would be, you know, you want to take a flight out to, let's say, to Los Angeles. First, you need to get to your local airport. 
So you need to think about how to get to the local airport. Maybe you take a bus or a taxi or something like that. And so you're reasoning about behavior at this very abstract level, as opposed to thinking about, you know, how am I going to move my foot first? Then how am I going to move my leg in order to move toward the door okay. in order to get out the door or down to the taxi? Okay. So one example you gave about the wine glass, throwing it at the wall and it breaking, is that something where you're saying one of the first steps of that is knowing that it's glass and having the prior knowledge that glass breaks and being able to apply that to a wine glass in this new situation? Or is it more about the aggregating all of the different scenarios of if I throw this glass, then it will break being one Mm. piece of information? Yeah, I think both of those are really important as far as coming up with kind of a coherent notion of how abstraction works. I'd say the main piece that I'm really trying to get a handle on is when we throw a wine glass at a wall, we can make the prediction that it's going to shatter, but we can't make the prediction about where the particular pieces of glass are going to lie on the ground after. And in fact, it's not all that useful for us to do that anyway. And so it's, it's about you know, when we make predictions about the future, we only do it at the level of these abstract properties, like this wine glass will now be broken. Or like if you're planning out, you know, maybe the next year of your life, you want to take some trips, you're going to plan out things at this much more abstract level rather than this very detailed. So it's almost like knowing how far is good enough. Yeah, exactly. Like how much detail do you need in making these kinds of predictions about the future in order to, you know, reason about whether or not that future is a desirable one or not? Because I'm a hyper-intelligent Roomba, then I might need to know where the glass is going to fall. But Sure. Yeah, exactly. I'm attending. If I'm at the dinner party guest, I don't. Right, right. So that's really the core question is, um, you know, how can we learn those those kinds of properties about worlds that we interact with, about objects that we interact with? And the trick is you basically can't be shown every possible situation. You know, you can't be shown, here's a slightly new wine glass, you know, maybe with a slightly longer stem and we already know by our prior knowledge about wine glasses that if we were to throw this thing, it's probably going to break. Mm. And so the difficulty is from the computer science perspective, how do we come up with good algorithms that can learn this sort of abstract reasoning that you can use to make forward predictions about the world at the right level of abstraction? So what are you building on in the field? What's there that you're able to use to your advantage? And then what is the next logical step? Yeah, let's see. So there's been a long line of work on abstraction and its role in AI and in reinforcement learning maybe dating back to some of the earlier methods and more symbolic AI, where the approach was to you know, write down at a very abstract level to begin with the rules of a game. So like Terry Winograd's uh, PhD thesis is on this thing called Sherdlu, which involved kind of defining this little blocks world consisting of blocks of different shapes and sizes and colors. And then Sherdlu was a program that could reason about um, objects in this world. And this, again, going back to the beginning, when you have kind of the advents of, a, of computation, you have good memory and the ability to compute a lot very quickly without getting bored and making mistakes and things like that. You can reason really effectively about the objects in your world. And so that approach took us quite far for a long time. Hmm. But the difficulty is that that's not the reality of most problems that we find ourselves facing. Either we as people, or if we want to take an AI system a program and kind of point it at a particular problem, the reality is it has to deal with high dimensional inputs through something like a camera or maybe a depth sensor, or maybe a microphone. Or maybe all at once. Maybe all at once, exactly. So it doesn't get to 
perceive these high-level properties directly. And so there's been this big line of work in this kind of symbolic AI space for a long time that's developed methods that are really effective for reasoning with the so-called symbols that are these abstract representations effectively. And there was this really nice paper by uh, Rob Brooks called Intelligence Without Representation that I completely love. And the beginning of it basically says, the kind of thing that I personally am doing, this notion of coming up with abstractions, sort of misses the point. We should be looking more at embodied AI and get past this obsession with representation and abstraction and things like that, hmm. which was a really good motivator for me to you know, confront. How can I get past these potential shortcomings that this paper identifies? That's interesting. In order to get past some of those shortcomings, you need to understand abstraction as well to understand how do you step backwards to take a step forward. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Yeah. So I really take, I do still think that abstraction is really important for kind of these general purpose learning systems. And on that note, there's been continued work that looks at sort of a fusion of, you know, symbolic and connectionist systems or symbolic and statistical system that look at approaches and abstraction. So there's, since maybe the 80s or so, there's been a lot of work, particularly in reinforcement learning, looking at abstraction from a lot of different angles. Um, One major thread has been looking at the abstraction of behavior. It's in like the hierarchical RL literature, the options literature. And then the other vector has been on state abstraction, which is more the approach that I've been investigating um, that's also been around for quite some time. Okay. And looking forward, I'd say those still roughly define the space of things we'd like to solve or better understand. And maybe the big challenges on the horizon are how to take abstractions and use them as part of a solution to the kind of the core fundamental challenges of reinforcement learning which there are roughly three, but the combination of those three also you know, provides unique challenges beyond just trying to solve one or two on their own. And so this kind of unification of how does the property of abstraction, this ability to come up with abstract models, what does it actually do in terms of enabling an intelligent system to scale, to solve really hard problems? I think that question has been open for a while and you know, there's a big community charging forward trying to understand it and answer it. So with that, it also seems like there's a gap between the theoretical knowledge that we're building and the practical application. So what's missing from that approach in terms of the technology, hardware, software, um, or theory that will change the space? Yeah, that's interesting. So let's see. So maybe one place to start is that the theory just lags behind a little bit, almost inevitably. We have you know these very powerful methods now for solving tasks in computer vision and perception but also in language, translation, speech generation, things of that nature. And because these applications really can take so much into account about the particular problem and the particular domain that they're focused on, it's much, I don't want to say easier because it's still a very challenging problem, but you would anticipate that by being able to take into account more specifics about the particular task that our applied methods could take us farther. Um, And that's absolutely what we've seen so far. My advisor has a a nice aphorism that's when you have a big, hard problem to solve, you can either simplify the problem and then solve the simple problem, or you can come up with a, a partial solution to the big problem. And a lot of what I see theory doing is coming up with a, the right kinds of simplifications of the big problems that we want to solve, and then solving those exactly or giving kind of complete knowledge, complete answers to that simple problem. Whereas the applied methods come up with good approximations of trying to solve these problems in general. And the aggregation of those are the problem then? 
Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's a lot, the two methods can teach each other about, you know, good empirical and applied work can give rise to questions about, you know, where should we be investigating our theory? What questions should we be asking? Why do these things work? Why do these things not work? And similarly, our theory can help guide our applications by saying, we know in principle that this is just not possible, or here are some things that you should watch out for that could be potential pitfalls of these kinds of approaches. And so they definitely have a lot to teach and tell each other. Great. So changing topics a little bit, our last two interviews on this podcast had something to do with building distributed energy policy and data gathering frameworks to build a sustainable energy grid. Mm. So your research also mentions applicability of what you're doing to building computational sustainability. Can you tell us what that means and why it matters? Yeah, absolutely. So computational sustainability is this emerging field in that's kind of cross-cuts a lot of different disciplines. There's a lot of really exciting work in the space going on. So the field sort of headquarters is a website, compsus.net, that has a link to a lot of different very cool projects going on. That The premise of the field is to take the tools of computation, things like machine learning and data science and, and reinforcement learning, but also just large data centers and other sorts of techniques, and bring those tools to bear on problems and sustainability. So there's a wide variety of problems that people have investigated. I have looked at in the past, actually, also deals with energy. So the premise was to improve the amount of energy that an individual solar panel could harvest hmm. by making it a reinforcement learning agent. And so we would give it agency by allowing it to move around a little bit so it can rotate in all directions. And as a result, sometimes it can get a little bit more energy than you normally would. That's interesting because at some point in that process, you need to be comfortable with making mistakes, right? Right. Because if the solar panel has never tried being angled at, I don't know, upside down facing the ground, then it never knows that it's going to get no energy. Is there some way that you can build in that agency with it being comfortable with mistakes to the right extent where you're still able to get productive value out of it? Yeah, that's a massive open kind of question. Yeah, I really love that question. Like there are the sort of traditional approach in reinforcement learning is sort of a try everything until something works. Hmm. And by traditional, I guess I mean the old school, some of the papers from the 80s and 90s you were mentioning. And then the more recent techniques try to you know, once they've seen that one kind of thing doesn't work, they try to learn, you know, this other thing looks a little bit like that thing I saw a second ago. So I'm going to stay away from that. I would say that general problem is still very present. And so we don't have kind of uniform solutions to how to ensure that, you know, these things are going to make mistakes in the meantime until they do a good job of learning. Yeah. And making the right mistakes. You don't want one of the mistakes to be kill all humans or something like that. <laughs> right. These kind of catastrophic mistakes. Like with your solar panel, it could maybe bend too far and destroy the actuator, oh, yeah. you know, bang into a solar panel next to it or something like that. And at the end of the day, we're programming these things. And so if you have knowledge of constraints that you'd like to impose, there are definitely ways to apply constraints of a certain kind. So you could say, you know, just never change the angle of the solar panel by more than this amount or, you know, always check to make sure you're more than, you know, however many centimeters away from the nearby panel, things like that. So that's an example where we are combining what a reinforcement agent knows and is able to do with human knowledge and domain expertise. Right, exactly. I'm, I'm guessing there's some points where our domain expertise might not actually be good to add, uh, maybe not yet, but hmm. at some point the, the reinforcement agents are going to be doing that themselves. Yeah, interesting. I'm not sure. I guess a lot of work my advisor has done has been on interactive RL, where you actually have a person that's distributing feedback to 
the RL agent at the end of the day. Mm. So instead of having you know the sun and the energy and the solar panel determine the reward you get, you'd have a person dictate the reward. Mm. Or in our elevator case, you know, there's people at the end of the day. Were you happy with this elevator? And click a little button. Mm. Like you may have seen at some airports. And one point he's made, there's this really great talk by he and Charles Isbell on interactive machine learning, where he made a point that at the end of the day, humans are the final arbiter of what success looks like for these systems. Like we kind of are defining the objectives and we as sort of denizens of the world are getting to pick what we want these things to be doing. And so as a result, you know, the claim is that our feedback is almost always going to be informative, maybe not for something very specific, like, you know, how to balance between steering a car and the exact amount of pressure you want to put on a brake for an autonomous car or something like that, where we don't have intimate knowledge of the, you know, the exact pressure units or something like that or work or whatever it is. But at the high level, being able to understand what it is that we want these systems to do, that at the end of the day comes from our community. And so there's a certain kind of feedback that I think, per his point, will always be uh, valuable. Great. Yeah, that's interesting that there are, it is usually guided by humans and that even in the case of solar panels, like for us, we would imagine that energy is that reward system. The higher amount of energy you're able to hold and maintain is a reward system. Mm-hmm. But there's probably examples of systems that we may think it's one thing, but in reality, it's one reward system may benefit a broader amount of people or may benefit the longevity of the robot or may benefit one individual person more than anything else. And that's interesting that there's programming into that that makes that choose. Mm-hmm, definitely. Great. So what else are you excited about in reinforcement learning or in intelligent agents in your field in the future? Yeah, let's see. So I think a lot of the applications we've seen so far have mostly come from other areas of AI and machine learning. So like I was mentioning, a lot of the success in computer vision and tasks related to language, our ability to solve problems in those spaces reliably has definitely unlocked this huge amount of new tools to use for solving some really big challenges like medical imaging and DNA sequencing, things of that nature. With reinforcement learning, we haven't yet, as I've mentioned, cracked some of the major theoretical problems that to me prevent us from you know, reliably and responsibly deploying these systems into you know, actual real world domains where they can make a big impact. So I think one of the biggest points of excitement is as we start to solve maybe twofold, as we start to solve some of these problems and come up with more robust and reliable systems, to me, it's just going to open up this huge number of potential applications. And we're going to start to see a lot of problems that have remained really elusive for a long time start to be solved or at least be helped you know, along by these reinforcement learning systems. There's these sort of centaur approaches to problem solving where you have a person and a machine working in consort together. And I think you know, as our language, our understanding of how to use language from a machine learning perspective and our understanding of reinforcement learning co-develops, we'll start to see more of these sort of centaur systems hmm. able to solve bigger and harder problems. At the same time, as I was saying at the beginning, like a lot of some of my excitement for this field comes from just curiosity and some of the questions I used to like asking in the context of more of a philosophy classroom. And reinforcement learning is a way to sort of ground a lot of those questions. And so I think as we make strides in answering some of these questions about how the nature and limits of effective reinforcement learning, we can start to gain pretty profound insights into the nature of you know biological cognition and biological learning as well. So those two paths, I think, are both very exciting to me. 
So there seems to be a lot of benefit in computation and in research and helping us understand, I mean, what would a robot do in a maze the right way? That's very theoretical about making sure we understand how we can make things think. Um, a lot of the people listening are either in research doing their own thing or are in a separate industry. How would people who are in industry or working on their own problems use something like reinforcement learning, just like how broader machine learning has been in solving problems? Hmm. Yeah, a lot of it will ultimately be domain specific. But cases where you have the access to a simulator, if there are questions you want to ask about the simulator, reinforcement learning right now, the current state of things is it's very effective about running a lot of simulations and coming up with you know pretty intimate knowledge of the kinds of constituents of the simulator. So for example, in our solar work, we first built this little mini solar simulator and we were able to run a bunch of reinforcement learning experiments in the context of the simulation. And then we can ask a variety of different questions about what this thing had learned about the simulation itself. So cases where you have access to a simulator right now, and if any amount of your work involves making queries about that simulator, about you know really far off events, this is roughly the motto behind AlphaGo is that you can play a lot of games of Go one-on-one against yourself until you've learned to basically master Go. So that sort of setup does work quite well right now. And so there's lots of opportunities for RL to help out in that way. So it needs to be something, a use case that is simulatable or where mistakes are not a huge deal. Yeah, right. Both of those properties, for sure. I would say one other one, a slight generalization of traditional machine learning where a kind of core assumption in the usual applications of machine learning is that the data that you train on is just coming from the same source at all times. Hmm. But a kind of core aspect of reinforcement learning is that you actually have to choose which data to look at. This was classically called the hypothesis selection problem. You know, should I explore this room or this room? You know, without seeing the rooms, you don't know which one's more valuable. And so cases where that kind of structure describes your problem, there are variants of RL that are very effective at those sorts of things right now. So this is a lot of what underlies advertising generation right now, because you don't know, you know which ads are going to be most effective. And so a lot of the big tech companies can run these RL algorithms to best determine you know, which ads are going to get clicks and things like that. Hmm. But you know, there, there are other applications too beyond uh, ad placement and whatnot. There are ways to, if your data that you're interested in analyzing and getting insights from has that sort of flavor, then RL is, again, a potentially a very good fit if the essence of the world isn't overly complex. That's when the abstractions we've talked about, I think, will need to come into play in order to get RL to work at scale down the line. Not yet, but... <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, just one last question for you, Dave. Sure. So the name of the podcast is called Somebody Call a Doctor. So in what sort of emergency should somebody call you? Yeah, so I could definitely you know, help out with puppy training. <laughs> Um, <laughs> um, my girlfriend and I just trained Boston Terrier and I used some things I had learned from reinforcement learning a lot for that, which was quite fun. Oh man. And then maybe a, another random one that's more, more connected to my research is, uh, you know, if you have a problem and you want some good abstractions for it, I can potentially help out there too. <laughs> All right. Well, Dave, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your research as well. I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. It was a pleasure chatting. Thanks so much for listening to Somebody Call a Doctor. Today we've been talking with Dave Abel about his research at Brown, studying artificial agents and what it means to learn. For more information on Dave, check out our website, somebodycallaphd.com. 
If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who is doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycalledphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.